Good morning. Welcome to Church of the Valley on Martin Luther King weekend, also known as the day that I hope my Niners beat them Packers. Yes, and all the Packer fans were quiet. <laughs> Quick disclaimer this morning. We talk a lot about the resurrection at Church of the Valley, don't we? If you look at the logo of Church of the Valley, it's actually to point out that the stone was removed from where Jesus laid. Jesus did not stay in the grave. We talk a lot about the resurrection, and if we're honest, we talk about the resurrection because as I've been a part of multiple churches over my spiritual life, I've noticed that we rarely talk about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So maybe a little bit of it's an overcorrection, maybe a little bit of it is that, but when I was 20 years old, someone came to me when I did not believe, and I thought Christianity was the biggest joke ever, and I thought it was super lame, and someone said, do you know what Christianity's built on? And I said, no, and they said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the linchpin for Christianity. And so I thought, well, all I have to do is disprove the resurrection. And so I spent some time doing that when I was much younger, and it turns out, I believe with all my heart, he rose from the dead. But today, we're going to talk specifically about the cross, because Jesus is headed to the cross, and even though I, we talk a lot about the resurrection, I don't want any of us to leave him on the cross, but I want you to know that what we're going to talk about today is so important to those who have a Christian faith. It's so important for those who don't understand what Christianity is about, because the cross is what made it so we could be forgiven. And so with that, I want to jump into the fact that the invitation from God through His Son Jesus is given to both Jew and Gentile, to both religious and non-religious. So with that, let's jump into verse 18 where we ended last week. Here's what it says. It'll be on the screen. Many people, because they heard that He had performed this sign, Lazarus being raised from the dead is what they're talking about, went out to meet Him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him being Jesus. This is where we ended last week, and I want you to notice the embellishment of the paranoia of the Pharisees. The whole world, they said, is going after Jesus. Last week, we taught on the king of Israel, who is really the king of the kingdom of God, and his name is Jesus. This week, we will see that Jesus is the king of Israel who represent his people, but not just those who are of Jewish descent, but those who come after Jesus in this passage today, and you will notice that they seem a little out of place. Verse 20, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. This is really interesting because these were not the people you would generally see at the festival of the Passover. Why? Because if you're Greek, this didn't seem to apply to you. Now, they could have been Greeks, non-Jews, who had converted to Judaism, and that's why they're at the Jewish festival. Maybe that's why they were there to celebrate the Passover, but they ex seem to explain exactly why they were there in the next verse. In verse 21, it says, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, one of Jesus' disciples, in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we'd like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. These Greeks went to see Philip, the, uh, went to talk to him, the Galilean, to see if they could get access to Jesus. And it doesn't necessarily say why Philip went in turn or why they went to Philip, but my guess is it's out of reverence. They went to Philip because they knew that he was someone that was connected to Jesus. 
But it could also be because as we've stated before, as we've been reading this book of the Bible, the book of John, John seems to point out that after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, there were a lot of people that wanted to have Jesus killed, and so maybe he wasn't that noticeable, but he had just gone into the city on a donkey, and a huge crowd of people had seen him. And the text says, and Philip in turn went to Andrew. What is more is that these Greeks, these non-Jews, are looking for Jesus. Possibly and probably why they went to the Passover festival in the first place, to see Jesus. Why is that important? Because Jesus, during this Passion Week, which we're studying, is pursued and available to more than just the Jewish people. He is available to more than just people who are religious. He's available to more than just people who have grown up in the church, if you will. There's this theme in the gospel according to John as he points out that there are these altercations with these Pharisees and Sadducees and the ruling council. These are the most religious of the Jews. They ought to know the Hebrew Scriptures. They ought to know the Old Testament as we know it, or they definitely know it better than we do in a lot of ways. They ought to know exactly what the Messiah would look like, but they fight against the one that they claim that they worship because he didn't come in the way that they expected. And their pride wouldn't let them really accept that God in His grace would have to rescue them rather than them attempting to just keep the law perfectly, which they never could, as their justification. The Greeks asked to see Jesus, and the spoiler is, as we read, it's actually quiet about if they ever get to meet Him, but it creates this public speech that is probably for our benefit. So look at what Jesus says, verse 23. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. All right, first off, Jesus responds to what? Well, He responds to Philip and Andrew coming to Him to let Him know that these non-Jews, these Greeks, in fact, want to see Him and they want to meet with Him. So, Jesus responds to what? Jesus says, the hour has come that the Son of Man would be glorified. Jesus in His earthly ministry often, up until this point, was quoted over and over again of saying that His hour has not come. If you've been around the Bible at all, if you've heard any of the stories, we studied this last decade in John chapter 2, it says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and His disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to Him, they have no more wine." Woman, he said, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Then in John chapter 7 and throughout lots of that chapter specifically, it talks more about his hour not coming. Verse 30, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But in verse 23, Jesus replies of John 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. See, this is this, tra- this moment, this moment of transition, this moment of crossover. Something is happening, but we see that His hour has come, and the time has come for Him to fulfill what He came for. Through Jesus' perfect act of love and obedience to God the Father, God the Son obeys and will go to a sinner's death. But for the world, they may have looked at this as some insurrectionist getting what he deserved, but what it really was was the Son of Man getting what you and I deserve so that he could gift us what he deserves, which is right standing with God. 
The hour has come so that the Son of Man would be glorified. The Son of Man is the designation that Jesus used the most often for himself, a term that's found in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Daniel, and it speaks of the Messiah. And Jesus calls himself the Son of Man over and over again. But the hour coming, the time in which Jesus would fulfill the God-ordained plan of the Messiah substituting his life for ours is about to take place in just a few days. At the Passover festival, where both Jew and Greek are coming to celebrate God's substitutionary grace, while the true Passover lamb is in their midst and about to be sacrificed so that those who would trust God through the person and work of Jesus Christ would have what is known as substitutionary atonement. It was a gift. They sinned, and they, we sin, they sinned, and Jesus got the punishment. He was perfect, and we and they get his prize if we trust him. Verse 24, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, unless a seed hits the soil and dies, unless the Son of Man fulfills the mission of being the sacrifice for mankind, see, people are without hope. And without the opportunity to come into a forgiven relationship with God, because there's nothing you could do to work your way to God, so God worked his way to us. So Jesus uses the death and the sowing or the planting of the seed of the kernel as this illustration of what his death will ultimately do. It produces a crop of wheat which produces much fruit or produce. See, without Jesus' sacrificial death, church, Without what is known as the great exchange, where he got what we deserve and we get what he deserves, we, you, me, we are without an option to be made righteous, to be made right before God, to be forgiven and granted innocence. Even though guilt abounds in all of us, God and his goodness decided to do for you what you were unable to do for yourself, to stamp you not guilty through the death of his perfect and only son. So as Jesus uses this example of his purpose and mission to obey the Father through his continued progression to the cross, he also points out the fact that there is imitation that those of us who are Christians, those of us who have trusted Christ, who are trusting Christ, actually do imitate Christ. Not by literally going to a cross ourselves, but by dying to ourselves. Look as he continues, verse 25. Anyone who loses their life, or anyone who loves their life, will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Anyone who puts their life, or their hope, in this life more than the next one doesn't understand the faith that is given by God to people who he adopts into his kingdom, into his family. Listen, anyone who has been around the Bible or looks at life objectively knows that this life is but a mist. It's fleeting. It comes and goes. Time isn't something you can hold on to. Every time you want to hold on to a moment, a new moment comes. James, the half-brother of Jesus, puts it this way in James chapter 4, verse 14. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. A mist. Other translations say a vapor. 
the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, the richest man who ever lived, the man who had more pleasure and more experience than anyone, said it this way in Ecclesiastes 3. He said, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So we understand that our life is but a vapor, but a mist. But we cannot be satisfied or expect this life to fulfill So we must look to the next life as our final destination. I feel like I've shared this with you. I know I've shared it with people individually, but the fact is, right now, my life is really good. Okay, it's really good. And here's what I mean by that. It's, it's, I've worked in ministry long enough that I now get to have the role that I've always wanted. I've always wanted to lead and teach and disciple and invest in people. And I get to do that in my hometown of Santa Clara. My family's doing pretty well. We're all pretty healthy. My marriage is going really well. My kids are doing well in school, but more importantly, they seem to be progressing towards Christ and wanting more and more of Him. Financially, we're in an okay place. We get to live in a context where we actually enjoy the fact that there's always stuff to do here. And I say all of that to say this, even though life is really good, hear me, it's not satisfying. No matter what I've looked to inherit or to accumulate, it is not satisfying. There is nothing I own that's created that won't end up in a garage sale one day. Right, Mimi? Right. Because we do garage sales. And so, even though everything seems to be so good, it's not satisfying. But here's what I'm here to tell you. It's not supposed to be satisfying. Only Christ can satisfy. So, if all you do is strive for the best that you can get in this life, if all you do is strive for what this life has to offer, you are, for, you are essentially forfeiting the next life for this one. But to contrast Jesus' analogy of the kernel that dies, when we die to ourselves, when we put Christ on the throne of our lives, rather than a created thing or a grass is greener circumstance, or how much we want to acquire, or how much we want to have comfort or pleasure, we are trusting Christ as His Word and trusting that what He promises about eternity is real. So living this life as a pilgrim, Christian, as a sojourner, one who has a destination that is so much greater than all that this life has to offer isn't something we try harder to do. It's something that Scripture and the Spirit of God constantly remind us of that we were made for. So to hate your life doesn't mean you want nothing to do with this life. There's a purpose for your being. That breath you just took that you didn't even think about taking was on purpose, but it means you don't make this life ultimate. Because when those who have died to themselves, which is true of every Christian that has actually repented of their sin and stands redeemed before God, not because they did anything other than believe in the one that God sent. We've died to ourselves, but if you're like me, There are things that are constantly creeping in. There are things that are constantly creeping in that are idols, things that are good, that we make God, that sit on the throne of our lives and become the center of our being, and we need to give those things over to the Lord. Do you know how bad I wanted to wear a Niners jersey while I preached today? I'm just just putting that out. I was going to wear Bosa, just letting all of you know that. Not that it matters, but I wanted to wear it. But I didn't want anyone to think that Jesus is the God of the Niners. He's not. Jesus is the God of his people. So I don't know what sits on the throne of your life. 
or what must die so that life can abound in your life. But I know I have idols galore that compete for my worship and devotion. Verse 26, whoever serves me, Jesus says, must follow me. Wow, that seems profound, doesn't it? (laughs) And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. This seems to go against the Christianity that most people adhere to, okay? I'm about to get offensive. I hope this isn't you, but maybe it is. Jesus calls his disciples, those who are his people, those who have trusted him, to actually follow him, to imitate him, to emulate him, to obey him. Christianity, as most communicate, either with their words or their actions, seems to be a lot more, based on what I see, about acknowledgement rather than devotion. It's almost as if most people treat Christianity as a life insurance policy, that all you have to do is pay all the premiums up front, and it can be called upon for payout when you die. I kind of wish more people, especially those who claim that they're Christians, would, would say what it really seems like. I wish they would say what the Jewish religion often has people say. I wish they'd say what many Catholics often say, that we are non-practicing oh, I'm a non-practicing Christian. <laughs> because at least then they'd be honest about the fact that their Christianity didn't take. Because to believe God and to not follow Him is to not believe God at all. I actually got an ouch, finally. <laughs> See, we think we're a good person if we're religious. If we're a Christian, we think, oh, we're good, but becoming a Christian is actually more about acknowledging how not a good person any of us are, because we don't base our goodness on a comparison to other people. Our goodness is in contrast to God because God's perfect and we're not. So when we follow Him, it's because He's uniquely given us the ability to want Him, to serve Him, to care more for Him than we do ourselves because we are no longer our own, and we are no longer our own God, but He is our God, and our lives are worship services dedicated to Him. So we serve Him, not out of gaining salvation or gaining what He gives us, because He has given us all that we need in Him, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and because of that we serve Him, because that's what His people do. And the Father honors those who serve Him. Not out of an eye for an eye, but service out of love, which is reciprocated. See, the fact is that those of you who love my kids, I love. Even if we disagree on football teams, even if we disagree on politics, even if you love my kids, it is easy for me to love you. John 12, 27, Jesus continues, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? This is rhetorical. Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. In a moment of prayer, as Jesus speaks to the Father and asks this rhetorical question, he confesses that his heart is troubled. He knows where he is headed. He knows what this week leads towards. And don't get it skewed. Even though Jesus knew the plan, even though Jesus is the Word who became flesh, physically going to the cross And for the first time in all of eternity, being separated from the Father was not at all comfortable, church. It was painful. It was excruciating. 
and his heart was troubled, as we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark chapter 14, this is right before Jesus is going to be taken and then tried and then sent to the cross. Here's what it says. They went, in verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. I never say that right. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, he took James and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Now, we all know they fell asleep, but let's not get there. Verse 35, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Daddy, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Have you ever prayed like that? Lord, I think I know where you're taking me. I don't want to go, but your will, not mine. What shall I say, Jesus says? Father, save me from this hour? No, this is why he came. This was God's plan all along. This is how the gift of God would be put on display and offered to those who would trust him. Only through belief that God's sacrifice was sufficient to make dead people alive. So he concludes with a request. Father, glorify your name. Jesus' example of doing everything for God's glory is something that we ought to imitate, but if we're honest, we are so fixated on other things. As all that we do in this life ought to, when redeemed by Christ, point back to Jesus and what he's accomplished and what he is doing through us. We don't point to our own good. We point to the one who is good. So Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. By these words, Jesus is testifying that he prefers the glory of the Father to anything else, and he even neglects and disregards his own life. And the true response of Christians is to desire to seek the glory of God in such a manner that all other things pale in comparison. Verse 28, second half of it, it says, Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. Okay, so we're reading in this book, and the book says that God spoke. And I know for some of us, we hear God speaks, and that sounds like a miracle that just probably didn't happen. But here's the thing. If Jesus can rise from the dead, God can speak from the heavens. Jesus speaks to the Father, and in this instance, a voice from heaven speaks audibly. He says, I have glorified it, and I will continue my work. I will glorify my name through the death of my son, is what he implies. God will get glory because Jesus' act of obedience to his Father's will and plan will tear a hole in history because up until that point, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the plan of reconciliation was now going to be more obvious to people than it ever has been. The death of God's only Son, the death of God with skin, was going to become the fulfillment of the Old Testament's promise that a Messiah would come and reign. 703 years prior to Jesus even being born to Mary, the prophet Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. This was promised 700 years prior to it happening, and yet Isaiah speaks as if he's an eyewitness to Calvary and Jesus on the cross. 
Then it says in verse 29, the crowd was there and heard it said and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. So imagine the scene. Imagine Jesus speaking to his disciples. There's this large crowd that has come to see Jesus. He is speaking, and then he prays, and a thunderous voice from heaven speaks. And what does the crowd do? Probably exactly what you or I do, either mentally or with our actions, make excuses or misunderstand when God is involved. Verse 30, Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. See, Jesus didn't need more faith, church, nor did he need the miracle of God the Father's voice to speak to remind him that what he was doing was right. This was for the benefit of those who were in attendance so they could hear once again that Jesus isn't just some prophet. He's not just some teacher, but he is the fulfillment of the hope of God's people. Verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. The word here used by Jesus for judgment could mean either condemnation or restoration. And I'd contend that it means restoration as Jesus is going to go to the cross and that brings restoration for sinners like us. To have access to God through God's only Son who obeyed the Father's will by substituting himself who was the perfect sacrifice so that people who are sinners can be made right before God. The great exchange, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5 often, he who knew no sin became sin so that we could have right standing before God. See, this is what God is doing. This is what Jesus is headed towards. If there is no death of Jesus, there is no access to the Father. Do you hear me? Without Jesus dying in our place, we do not get to stand before God made righteous to have right standing because no one but Jesus is perfect. No one but Jesus could sacrifice themselves so that the people who would believe in him and his finished work could be made righteous. Without him doing this, we would never be gifted right standing with God we'd never be declared not guilty because of what Jesus has done. So no matter how anyone else thinks that they can get to God by possibly being a good person, I'd ask you by what metric do you compare yourself to as far as being a good person? Because God doesn't grade on a curve. (laughs) Well, better than Hitler, good for you. It's either perfection or nothing. And I know how sinful I am. I know how many idols, well, I think I know how many idols are in my heart. But because I know how sinful I am, I cannot be self-righteous or self-sufficient or self-centered. I must be gifted righteousness by Christ. I must be Christ-sufficient, and I must become Christ-centered if I have actually received the grace that is given through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Verse 31, now the prince of this world will be driven out. Jesus is calling it. Jesus is calling his shot. The restoration he brings by a sacrificial death in the place of people who would repent and trust him as their sufficiency is about to take place. And the prince 
of this world. The enemy who since the garden has been attempting to point people away from what God says in Genesis 3, who wanted glory for himself in Isaiah 14, who has been a tempter attempting to skew the very words of God's meaning in the desert in Matthew 4, but because of what Jesus will accomplish… The prince of this world, or as Paul says in Ephesians 2, the ruler of the kingdom of the air will lose. The onlookers in just a few short days after these words were spoken will think that Jesus was delusional because he said that he was the Messiah, Messiah, but surely the Messiah couldn't die. I'm sure that the disciples believed that they worshiped at the feet of a man rather than at the feet of the Christ. Because once he was no longer alive, they lost hope. I'm sure that as Jesus breathed his last breath, that people, right after people had screamed, crucify him, believed that he was getting what he deserved. Little did that crowd know that he was getting what we deserve, that his death brought us life defeating the dominion that Satan thought he was going to have and that he thought he was going to show for was really just a mirage. As God's perfect substitutionary plan was becoming complete, as God took on skin and died for the sins of the world so the world could know that God truly did for them what they were unable to do for themselves. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 15, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, 100% God, 100% man, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus' death is the ultimate escape clause for the world. Because without Jesus standing in the gap, without what the cross and what it represents is, we are still stuck in our sins. We are still deserving of wrath. So what does God do? He puts the wrath of God against the evil of our sin onto his son. Wow. So that by receiving this gift, we too can share in the benefit of Jesus' perfect life lived. And when we trust Jesus alone, Death no longer has final say, but Christ does. And to repeat what he says on the cross in John chapter 19, verse 30, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Where others might have thought that the plan and supposed power of Jesus were finished, it was actually the power that sin had over this world that was finished. Because a perfect God who took on flesh lived a perfect life and sacrificed himself. He imputed, he gave us his righteousness to an undeserving people who through a God-gifted grace and faith would be able to trust him as their sole means of justification. This good news never gets old. This good news, church, never gets stale. This good news never stops being our justification, our right standing, our salvation, and our righteousness because the good news is manifested and personified in Jesus Christ. And we praise Him, and we glorify Him, and we trust Him because He alone, because of grace alone, through faith alone, is what makes you or I a forgiven person because we aren't good people. We are forgiven people.
And only those who knew or know they need to be forgiven will look for the one whose salvation belongs to, rather than just trying harder to be good or trying to justify all the things that they've done wrong. See, I don't want to stand before God one day at the end of this life and point out that I am a good person. I want to point out that because of Jesus, I'm God's possession. Verse 32, and I, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Many look at this statement as lifted up from the earth to mean lifted up on a cross. And yes and amen, he was lifted up on the cross, which made it so that you and I could see the one who was without sin, who died for our sin, so that we could know the Son. And he says that he will draw. See, this is the same word we studied a long time ago in John chapter 6, verse 44, where Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. So this drawing of his people, his children, his redeemed, is not a hopeful drawing that is a take it or leave it, but it is saying that he, as he's lifted up on the cross, God uses that completion of Jesus' obedience to the Father's will as the effective drawing of all that are his, that are destined to be part of God's church. But he also says, draw all people to myself. Now, let's be real right now. Not every person is a Christian. Did you guys know that? (laughs) Not every person who claims they're a Christian is a Christian. Did you guys know that? Yes, because you come here. See, this doesn't mean that every person will be redeemed by God. See, that doesn't happen. As to say it doesn't matter what we believe. God is love, so that means he just accepts everyone. If God forced you to spend eternity with them without you wanting to, that sounds more like kidnapping than salvation. But the word all implies all of His. All of the children of God, all of those who would call on His name would receive His grace and they would trust Him. We've studied this verse multiple times. John chapter 1 verse 12 is John starts his letter, yet to all who did receive Him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. All was used to say that his children, his church, consisted of both Jew and Gentile, those who were in the Hebrew bloodline for those who weren't, which is most of us. See, it's not the family you grew up in. It's not attending church that made your salvation possible. It was the grace of God spread throughout the entire earth, which was an invitation for all types of people to be adopted by God, for God, and through God by His grace. Verse 16 of John 10 says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. should have the sheep pen. Mike, could you build that real fast? I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Now listen, as a person who didn't grow up in the church, wasn't what most people would call religious or even spiritual, who didn't do anything that was worshipful towards God at all, to be honest, for most of my life I didn't even acknowledge that God existed, and yet none of my past excludes me from a future eternal life in Jesus Christ. Because his people were drawn to himself, those who have grown up reading and maybe even adhering to the Bible, and those who were irreligious and didn't give a rip about anything that seemed reverent or pious towards God. Verse 33, 
He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So his being lifted up on the cross made it so those who would be included in Christ could be drawn by God through substitution and through grace to get what you don't deserve. Verse 34, the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The crowd may not have just been pointing out the law of Moses, which is known as the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but possibly pointing out the entire Old Testament. We're speaking of the Messiah. In Isaiah 9, the word says this, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So the crowd were attempting to point out that maybe Jesus was an heir. Don't you even know the word? Word? Because the Son of Man would be forever and would exist forever according to the writings of the Old Testament. And so they wanted to know how the Son of Man, this messianic title of this person would be lifted up, would be sacrificed, could possibly die if they understood the law to always live. But what they were missing was what Jesus was in regards to the law. As the Apostle Paul says to the church in Rome, in Romans 10, 4, he says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be right standing for everyone who goes to church. Oh, sorry, wrong translation. That there would be right standing for everyone who believes. Jesus is the completion of the law, the culmination. He is the one that we look to and be redeemed by, not by trying to pay Him back or even by imitating Him, not by anything we do, but by believing in Him and believing Him that He is enough. So they ask, who is the Son of Man? Essentially to imply, it can't be you. If you're claiming you'll be lifted up and die. But look at his response, which really pulls together the entire point of what seemed to be the response to those wanting to see Jesus, which is really just an invitation. Here it is, verse 35. Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. That's kind of a duh verse, but it makes sense. Here is what I believe. This is what I believe Jesus is pointing out. Yes, he will only be with them for just a little while longer. In less than a week, he's going to die on a cross, but three days later, Jesus will physically rise from the dead. He's going to appear to hundreds of people, including 500 people all at the same time, and many friends and disciples and family members he will appear to. He will eat with them. They will embrace and hug him. Thomas will probably touch the hole in his hand. He will physically be with all these people, resurrected and glorified. He will talk with them, teach them, and give them instructions because he will point out that later in John, he will have to leave so he can send the Holy Spirit to those who are his followers to guide and lead them. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. If he can rise from the dead, he can fly to heaven. So he's going to leave. But his gospel message continues here on earth. It's going to be spoken about. It's going to be explained. It's going to be proclaimed by his followers. And it is this gospel message that we get to proclaim. Not from a street corner with a sign, but as an answer for those who ask about what our identity is secured in. A proclamation of hope that means that we do not have to work our way to God because we cannot. But God made his way to us so we could inherit eternal life through the gift of God's Son. So Jesus points this out to the crowd of probably God-fearing Jews, God-fearing Greeks, his disciples, and possibly Pharisees, and other teachers of the law, that the gospel message is available to all of them. And if they've heard it from the gospel message personified in Jesus, they must repent. And he warns them to walk in the light, to no longer identify themselves with the darkness, which is either legalism or liberty, but with freedom and forgiveness of their sin through the receiving the pardon for their crimes against God. So walk, Jesus says, while you have the light. Pursue Jesus while you still can, before darkness, darkness of understanding, darkness and hardness of heart have made the message of the gospel no longer something that they will receive. You know what changed my heart? God. Okay, that's the easy answer. But it was watching Christians that weren't like the Christians that I was used to seeing, the self-righteous Christians that make no sense. It was watching people that cared for people in spite of them, and when I asked them why, it, was, it felt a little pithy, it felt a little lame at the time, but it makes a ton of sense because Jesus gave me grace. That's what God used to draw me to himself. See, when our hearts are hardened to the truth, we ignore it or disobey it over and over. At some point, we're just unwilling to receive it because we have decided to reject the justifier. Verse 36, believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. So here's the thing. The invitation that Jesus offers is one that says that the light has shown itself to you. And you are being drawn by God because you see his glory. You see how beautiful and wonderful God is. Not because you're afraid of hell but because you want nothing more than God for who he is and how he has secured your place in eternity by shedding the blood on the cross for the sins that you committed against him. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance, the word says. And then you will walk in the light because you are children of the light. You will not, that will not ever be taken from you because God gifted you himself and knew when he gifted you how imperfect you will live, but gave you the light to see the world by. Through the gospel message that you and I can be forgiven, through the gospel message that we can be made right because we realize that we're in need of forgiveness, and forgiveness is an offer that God offers both Jew and Gentile, atheist and agnostic, legalist or self-centered. Listen, 
That's my last point. The gospel message is not an altar call. I don't know. I, Billy Graham was legit, and he did altar calls, and that was great, but hear me. The gospel is not the altar call as if it's some emotional manipulation to get you to pray a prayer or walk down an aisle as if something you could do actually saves you. The gospel is a proclamation that the kingdom of God is at hand, and the king of the kingdom invites you to become a resident and a child of the God most high. Not because you earned it or deserve it, but because God loves you and proved that once and for all as he shed his blood on the cross as an innocent man to secure the salvation for guilty people, which is the greatest exchange in all of history.